My name is Kevin Hines. I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. I believed that I had to die, but I lived. Today, I travel the world with my lovely wife, Margaret, sharing stories of people who have triumphed over incredible adversity. Now, we help people be here tomorrow. Welcome to the Hindsights Podcast. RI International and Behavioral Health Link are providers of the Crisis Now model, transforming crisis services for behavioral emergencies. RI International tends to the mental health crisis of the individuals in 10 states across the United States and internationally to provide support and care for people during the lowest point in their lives. Behavioral Health Link operates crisis call center services, dispatches GPS-enabled mobile crisis services to homes and community locations, and offers the country's most trusted crisis system software, Care Traffic Control. The time to transform crisis care services is now. Find out more at crisisnow.com. Ladies and gentlemen, family and friends, it's your friendly neighborhood, Kevin Hines, and I'm here with a great friend of mine, the one and the only and the true, Miles Adcox. He is the CEO of OnSite, a therapeutic treatment center. He's fond of calling it human school rather than formalizing the pathology of a diagnosis to what I call his citizens of hope in recovery. He's an amazing human being with a phenomenal body of work and helping others find their resilience and their true selves. Miles, welcome. Appreciate you coming on. Oh, Kevin, it's good to see you, my friend. I'm glad to be here. Grateful for you being here, my friend. Miles, you're the CEO of OnSite, and OnSite has 75 beds, and people stay there from four days to a week and beyond. Tell us what, what on-site is and what it means to you. Sure, yeah, yeah. We're a, a personal growth, a therapeutic retreat center. We're just west of Nashville here in Tennessee. That's our main campus. We've got a, a new campus out in Southern California that we're going to be uh, mobilizing into probably in 2021. But most of our work uh, happens on our campus here in Tennessee. We do some remote things as well. But if there's kind of two distinct, well, really three distinct services of our offerings. One are short-term intensive therapeutic workshops specializing in emotional health and trauma and grief and loss and a variety of different topics under the mental health lens. Uh, We also have a longer term residential program specifically for trauma, depression, anxiety, are kind of our specialties there. And then we have some digital offering. And then I do some some speaking and consulting in in the music and entertainment industry as well. So that's that's kind of onside in a nutshell. You asked me what it means to me too. Yes, what does it mean to you? Tell tell us what it means to to run onside and to be such a big part of so many people's life changes. Well, thank you. Yeah. I should have started with that versus getting right into what we do. <laughs> okay. Tell you kind of who we are, because it's it's pretty it's deeply personal to me. What I get an opportunity to lead and be a part of, and it's really a dream come true. And it you know it kind of started when I got into my own personal recovery. I think it was not too far into that process that I began to realize that some of the principles that are underneath and serve as a foundation for the people I got to serve when they were in crisis really were applicable to everybody. And I I long dreamed, and don't get me wrong, I loved working in the crisis space, which is what I did early in my career, crisis interventions and worked in primary addiction treatment and worked with trauma and eating disorders. But I really, what I learned from the crisis business is everybody deserves uh, to have an experience like what we get an opportunity to deliver now. I just had no idea what it could look like or if it was even possible. Uh, And now at Onsite, I, I think we've been able to accomplish a lot of the dreams of just making the door wider uh, for people to walk through and not 
just do we offer, I believe, clinically sophisticated, uh, really research proven change technology and processes, but I think we've really been helping shift the stigma because there's a whole lot of people now that will leave a workshop or an intensive and be proud to go out and talk about it. And that's helped, of course, a lot of other people come. So it's, it's meaningful for me on a number of levels because I really feel like we're taking mental health into culture now instead of sitting back and waiting until culture needs us. I love that, taking mental health into culture instead of waiting for it to, to reach us. Is it true one of the first things that happens at onsite when someone enters in as a patient, I call them citizens of hope because patient and consumer is not the right word for people like us who have been through it and come out on the other side. Uh, but we are all citizens of hope trying to find that light at the end the tunnel to find our way forward is one of the first things that happens is, is, is that you take away their digital device or their phones. Is that accurate? That's right. Yeah, we, we do a digital detox. And so we find it to be unique to our model because in a sense, there are a lot of people trying to teach a lot of information in a short amount of time, but it can be hard to consume that when you are still moving at the same pace as a lot of information we're trying to, to download with you. Because there's so many people that come in and they're just dealing with consumption fatigue from the never ending cycle of a social feed or the cable news network of just constant bad news. And we find it very helpful, just like all other medicators, that we push pause on those temporarily and we allow you to be you. And usually it's pretty uncomfortable for the first 24 hours and then people really settle in and feel quite relieved and often uh, don't want their device back at the end of the week. That's right. And you know, the, the film, The Social Dilemma just came out recently on this very topic and how there's a real addiction with our devices and, and the social media platforms that lie within them. It makes sense that you take that away and give them a baseline of which to come to a calm and move forward in their treatment. Miles, you said once, we help people rewrite whatever personal narratives are not working for them. This was in your with one of your interviews with Crosspoint TV. It hit me right here, just hearing you say that. Can you describe what that quote means to you? We help people rewrite whatever personal narratives are not working for them. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, I think, you know, somebody asked me several years ago, what is it that you do? And I've always struggled answering that question because I, I'm so passionate about it. And I nerd out over the neuroscience of change and what I've learned personally and professionally through my training that I'll often go into the long form to try to describe what it's like to have a personal transformation. And I often lose people. I used to really lose people because they'd be like, well, I, I think I know what you do, but I'm a little more confused than when you <laughs> before you started talking. And I, but when I really, the day that this person asked, I distinctly remember it because I didn't have a lot of time and I was trying to, and I've never been good at the whole elevator pitch thing, but I was trying to think about how could you really summarize what it is we invite people into? And it was simply, we support people in saying the unsaid. And sometimes uh, saying the unsaid is one of the hardest, most important things we'll ever, ever do. But often saying the unsaid is speaking our truth, sometimes back into narrative that doesn't belong to us. Sometimes it's challenging narrative that is in our current reality that we might be clouded or have a false perspective on. And sometimes it's removing obstacles into the future. So ultimately, I think truth, because we all get imprinted along the way, sometimes positively, sometimes really challenging. But one thing we're learning about emotional and psychological trauma is that it's a universal condition and you don't really have to have some of the predetermined qualifiers that we've often thought that stigma tells us that you've experienced psychological trauma if you you are a combat veteran. Of course, you know, there is a high rate of people that, you know, I've got a lot of buddies that are combat vets that, you know, that's a high percentage of them are likely to experience that. But it's also, you can experience this inside, outside your family of origin. And what happens is when we do, it imprints us in a way 
that can cloud our perspective. And ultimately, if we don't have a natural outlet for stress, we compound it. And that compound stress creates fear in a sense that, as I said, clouds our perspective and our reality. And it's as simple, quite simple as what do I need to speak truth into to rewrite the narrative that supports me into living into the best version of myself? Yeah. Probably just should have said that up front. That would have been a lot shorter way to answer that question. But that's what ultimately, if, if I were, when people come into our process, the very first thing we empower them with is to invite them into the idea that you actually hold the pen to write the next chapter of your story. Because there's so many personal growth and recovery initiatives that are well-intended, but they create this interdependence on them that you need me in order to be okay. And we're not that. Uh, We feel like everybody has within them exactly what they need as long as they have a God that's willing to join them instead of push or pull them where we think they need to go. I love that. It makes makes perfect sense to me. And I, I hear you. You help people daily and everybody on site helps people daily with their anxiety, their stress, their depression, their burnout, and so much more. What does it feel like when you get to see someone from your facility, one of your citizens of hope, grow through their pain to find light at the end of the tunnel, to find recovery and find healing? What does that mean to you? It's honestly, Kevin, it's the best paycheck I could ever get. It's what reminds me on the daily of why I'm been divinely called into this work, why I show up and do what I do every day. Because this work, as you know, you've been on the front lines of advocating in a fierce way. It's not easy. I mean, the the stories that we digest every day and the pain that we hold for others and help them offload, it definitely can come at a cost. And so I think we need a reminder to not just trust the process of why we show up and do this, but also to be reminded to celebrate the miracles because I get to see a whole lot of them. And almost every miracle I get to experience, it reminds me of the very first time that I had the right people around me at the right time. And I got to experience a lights coming on moment. And I kind of see myself in some way every time I see another person have that aha moment. And I think what shifted for me, you know, in the last several years is I don't think that's something that anybody needs, but I think it's something everybody deserves. Very well said. You you say you want to humanize experiences of emotional pain, stuck in struggle, which is something everyone can relate to. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, I think I said it earlier in saying, I, you know, one of the things we specialize in at Onsite is, is trauma. And I think we're learning that trauma is universal. And the more we can realize the humanness in nobody escapes struggle, everybody experiences adversity, and we all need each other in order to build social and emotional networks to be able to offload that. So, you know, historically recovery movements, 12 step and others were kind of this secret society of where the downtrodden people who couldn't figure out life went to try to figure out life. But ultimately I think it's, we're onto something that is actually very supportive for everyone else, because we don't typically have those built-in networks. We get, it gets culturally conditioned out of us. I think it's so vital uh, that all of us have that built-in support and that this becomes a human condition, not a them condition. It becomes an us. And when we do that, you know, that's where this, and thankfully, thanks to you and a lot of other friends that have been out trying to reduce some of the stigma that we're seeing out there, we finally, I think, gotten some momentum. And it's an exciting time to be in our field because it no longer feels like it did 10 years ago when we were pushing a snowball up a hill to even get people to want to hear what we're saying. Now people are inviting me into circles outside of the mental health space to talk about mental health. And it's so exciting. So I feel like 
humanizing this condition is vital and therefore it helps erase the stigma that we're all after and shift the paradigm that we can all live a more authentic life. I love that. That's so perfectly aligned with what Margaret and I are doing with our foundation. We have our conquer pain hashtag and it's spelled CNQR and it stands for courage to talk about your mental health, your brain health and well-being, normalizing the conversation of it asking the questions, are you thinking of killing yourself and having made a plan to take your life? And R is for recovery because like you and me, we're living proof. And I really, I really can appreciate that. Let's get into to who is Miles Adcox. You know, we know you were an athlete and you said in the past in interviews that you didn't know where your life was going. You didn't know your path. You were a little confused with everything going on and you had struggles in your own personal journey and you had to find recovery yourself and find a way to live in recovery. Can you talk a little bit about your personal journey and let us into kind of the window of your life, if you will? Sure. Yeah, I guess, you know, kind of an, an overview would be the reason earlier on I said that it's a universal condition is because when I first had the opportunity to start taking a look at my story and figure out what parts weren't working and why I had landed in a place of feeling incredibly stuck and was in, was in a dark season of life, I found myself in that dangerous place of comparison to the circle that was around me, even though uh, it was one of the safest places I'd ever been because people were sharing their truth, but they had a lot of overt uh, trauma. And I felt like there were so many things about my upbringing that were good. And therefore, I honestly upfront didn't feel like I belonged or had a place there. And so that often uh, happens for people who don't have something specific in their story to point at as this is the why. And I don't mean to paint a picture that I haven't experienced some pretty crappy stuff. I have. But uh, if you put, somebody told me early on in a study that if you put an adult child of a workaholic and the adult child of an alcoholic in the same room, who do you think is going to be harder to treat? And it's, it's the adult child of the workaholic because culture supports that narrative and it rejects the other narratives. And so therefore, when that person enters their own need to do some work, they have something to point at and say, well, yeah, I grew up in this environment and it was overt and it was abusive or it was neglectful. And the other was like, well, that one got patted on the back. So if it's not that, it must be me. I really felt that when I was entering my own personal recovery is like, do I belong? And it must be me. And it was really when I started seeing that it was such a broad spectrum of things that can get in the way of us being who I know we can be. And therefore we all need to deconstruct that part of our narrative at some point. And so for me, it was uh, a, a really uh, well-intended and great family that we just didn't do emotion that well. And I think I came out of the womb, an emotional creature, a sensitive guy. And I learned pretty quick that you just don't talk about that. I was never told not to talk about it. I was just never invited into it. And like I said, I, I think it was it's generational and that we just haven't historically been taught the concepts of social and emotional learning. Thankfully, the children, you know, kids nowadays have got a much better chance if they're in the right school to start getting that education and information early. But we didn't get that. And so I got that conditioned out fast. And therefore, if you don't have a place to go out with it, then you go in with it. And so that's what I did. I started going in really early. And when I felt sensitive or emotional, and particularly if it was emotion that, you know, it was always, here's the good emotions, here's the bad emotions. And if it was a bad one, then you hit it. And so I learned how to save face and show the world what I felt would be accepted and affirmed and hide the rest of me. And that conflict later on ended up catching up with me. 
uh, because it ultimately served me well. I became, you know, uh, successful in a lot of ways. It was popular in a lot of ways. It served me socially. It served me even vocationally right out of school. But I found myself unfulfilled and unhappy on the back end of everything on paper working out. And that ultimately ran its course. I had this internal conflict that manifested into feeling depressed and anxious. Didn't have words for those. Didn't even know really what that meant at the time. And you better believe I hid that at all costs until I couldn't anymore. And when it got dark enough, I needed to reach out for help and appreciate that my my mom was one of the the, the first people to to see into me. She's I've never been able to get anything get away with anything my whole life that my mom didn't know. And she was uh, one of the ones that invited me into the idea of that I I need to do something and get help. And so thankfully I did. And I got to tell you when I when I got into my own personal emotional recovery when I started learning that it's okay to identify, it's not just okay, it's important to identify, acknowledge and own what you're feeling, where you're feeling it and be able to express yourself in that way. I felt free. I mean, freedom, like it's hard to explain. And I almost, it was almost like somebody was teaching me a new language and are giving me oxygen for the first time. And I just took to it so much so that I was like, not only do I feel I want to pursue this in my own personal life, but I want to do this professionally. And it was shortly after that, that I was ready to hang up the career that was for everybody else and pick the one that, that fit me. I love that. And, and really, you know, before you found that light and that hope for yourself, depression, the word depression wasn't even in your vernacular. You didn't know what it meant. And you moved from, from there to, recovery and and you moved into the helping profession. You know, you talk about building grace-based communities. What does that mean to you? And what role does faith and spirituality play in your efforts and the efforts of those of on-site as a whole? Well, probably the most impactful part of my early transformation and then early in my career was seeing what could happen if a community felt psychological safety. Because I think psychological safety is the key to change because it's what builds trust from one human being to another. But we typically don't know even what that means or how do you create it and curate it. And I just got obsessed and fascinated with that first in the treatment milieu. And it was honestly because I was seeing, you know, really good treatment providers that had this great service, but the back office was disjointed, disorganized, and the health of the organization was a mess but yet they were delivering on the front line this life-changing service and something just didn't connect. And so I got hyper-focused on, you know, could you improve outcomes if the back office felt like it matched the service? I just had a theory that they trickle into one another in our space. And so I really got focused on culture and how culture could help build community. And for a while there, it was what you know is of the utmost importance when it comes to supporting change with other people. So you need to hang your hat on your approach, your content, your education. And the side stage was, well, oh yeah, you also got to do hospitality, you know, food, have some community gatherings and things like that. And that was kind of what you, you had to check those off the box in order to pull off any type of residential setting. But it was early on that I realized the more effort that I put into the community easier it makes the clinical process. And so we started treating it with equal importance that everything we do from the minute we pick somebody up until the minute they finish one of our programs or processes, we want to pour into them and curate the type of nurturing environment 
that would be best for them to have the opportunity to, to heal in. And so now I would say I, I love creating spaces and have actually consulted some other companies inside and outside of our space on creating psychological safe spaces for people to live into the best version of their self. And that's just great space community is exactly what you said. And what I'm talking about here is where you feel you can be who you are, say what you need to say, and it will be held and supported for you to be able to work out that component and become the best version of you. Space and the people around you have a whole lot to do with it. And you can be intentional about setting that up right. Psychological safety is such an important part of your journey and the journey of everyone that goes through your programs. You say trust is built when psychological safety is present. And you also say that empathizing and mirroring with an an experience when you hear it and validating where people are is crucial. There's a big difference between saying when someone says, I feel so alone and you say you're not alone, that's an invalidation as you've put it in your words. That's an invalidation of what they're going through. You say that instead of saying you're not alone to someone who says that you say, I understand what it's like to feel alone. I really can appreciate that. And I've been guilty a million times of following that curve and saying to people who say, I feel alone, you're not alone, here are the resources. But really, you know, what they need to hear is that you've been there. You've seen those days and you've come out on the other side in a better and brighter way. And so I really, uh, in, in doing some research on your story, I really found it, that was one of the most poignant things you could have ever said because it's going to change the way I do my work from now on. And that's a big deal. I, I live and work in, and have developed in the last 20 years in the suicide prevention world. And the biggest, most common response from people when you, when you say, how, how are you going? How are you doing? Is I feel alone. And, and if all this time, I've said you're not alone. And that's just, when you think about it, it's not that it's wrong. What it is, it's an invalidating way of, of responding. And I think that just to make it one more time clear, I understand what it's like to feel alone. Let's talk is a much better way of responding. And I, I have to say, Miles, I'm greatly appreciative for to learn that from you. It's something I'll take with me for the rest of my life. Thank you. Well said. I think the way, and ultimately that is, at the end of the day, in addition to why would we help people remove obstacles and embrace opportunities, say the unsaid, it's just to simply allow them to reset and reconnect. And that's what connection is, is when we feel seen, heard, valued, and the most important part, I think, is validated. And I like the way you just said that. I'm a firm believer in that too. And it is hard. I mean, I just did that. I, I believe in that theory a lot and have talked a lot about it. And yet I was doing a video last week and I only had a, a brief window and I said it. I didn't even see it until I watched it back. And it was around National Suicide Prevention Day. And I said, you're not alone in there somewhere. And so it's, it's, we're, we're so wired to just help. How do we alleviate and give you the most support as fast as we possibly can? And sometimes what people really want is for us to take one step back, take a breath and really hear them, catch them, hold them, support them where they are so that we can invite more conversation. Absolutely. You know, and I've long wanted to, to have a better way to relate to people who genuinely feel alone and, and, you, and you just give it to me. So thank you. You know, and, and also if you don't, if you're someone who loves someone who's going through it, going through hell, they're in pain mentally, they're maybe trying to be in recovery from substance use disorder, they're really working through their, their issues, and you don't know what to say, sometimes, like you've said in the past, it's important just to lean in, reach in, and show how much you care. I've always said it's not necessarily about what you say, it's about what you do. Because we can say things and they can go in one ear and out the other a thousand times. But if you, if you lean in, 
and you're really physically that shoulder to lean on, it can really make all the difference in the world. You've said that what people need more than anything in the world when they say I'm struggling with mental illness is to be, as you said earlier, seen, heard, valued, empathized, and validated. As in, you're safe here. You don't have to give them advice. You don't have to tell them how to solve their problems. You don't have to fix everything. You just need to be there and, and with them in the moment. And I think that's crucial. So much of your story embodies that. Tell us a little bit about the saying you have, what we need versus what we deserve. I think it, it's part of what I hope sets a better tone around mental wellness and health as uh, something that we actively embrace regardless of where we are on our journey and in our life. I think when we start to rebrand the concept of mental health as it's not what's wrong with you that you would come and try to work out what might be holding you back or you might be stuck in and become the best version of yourself, that's actually what's right with you. And when we stop saying you need this and flip it to actually everybody, including you, deserves this. And I think two things happen that are really important. I think one, people that are in the shadows, scared to reach out because of the stigma that might be around uh, asking for help, will feel more motivated because it's, it's more culturally accepted. And I think people who don't feel like there's anything for them to work on will feel more invited to check out where they might be in their own journey and how might they raise their emotional intelligence and self-awareness. And so the whole point of it's what we all deserve and not what we need is to help shift that stigma and paradigm and create a conversation that's more digestible inside and outside of mental health circles. Wonderful. My next question is, how do you and OnSite help your, as I've called them, citizens of hope, aka patients or consumers, give themselves permission to trust themselves in the recovery process? How can we get past the pain and into a place where we trust the forward movement? This is one of the hardest things to do because you can, you can say it all day long. In other words, you can tell people up front and we'll do that when we open up a program or orientate what we, we call guests at our place. And you can say, we have some sophisticated change tools here. We got a lot of training and experience. We got a proven program that we're proud of. But at the end of the day, we don't, we're not here with an agenda. We're here to join you and not push or pull you where we think you need to go. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at the stages of change, 90% plus percent of the people that show up in our care are in a stage called pre-contemplation. And most of us in the professional lens are in a stage called action. You know, if you think about the separation or the two gaps between that is they're over here saying, do I even trust this? Do I know, do I want to be here? I know I'm here, but part of that was just complying with either somebody else or my own narrative saying I should go do something about this, but I'm not sure I trust the process or the people around me. And we're over here saying, we've got an answer for you. All you got to do is step into it. And there's a big disconnect there, I think, that holds people back from taking that step into trusting who they are. And the longest journey I think we ever take as mental health professionals is leaving our ego of what we think we know, putting it behind who we are and taking that walk back into the discomfort of our own story so that we can stand beside someone in their discomfort and truly empathize with them and simply just shine a light on the step ahead, not take it for them not have a hand in the middle of their back pushing them, not trying to pull them forward, but simply join them and uh, let them take that step for themselves. And I know I'm talking in, in metaphor here, but the most uh, effective way I've seen to do that is to have as a requirement that those uh, working on the front lines of delivering the service, having been willing to sit in the chair of the people that they're guiding. 
because that's that's empathy that I don't know that you can get any other way. And so that's as important to me as any letters on a business card or behind a name is that you are willing to engage in the same process that you're inviting people into. And I think when you do, you show up more empathetic and you hand the keys to the other person for their own story to move forward, ultimately building the trust that you ask about. I don't think there's a person that could have said it better. Miles, that's where we'll wrap it up. I'm so grateful for your time here today and for your infinite wisdom on, on recovery, the recovery process and finding a, a better way and a, a better life for people in pain. What is, I would just give you the last word. What is one thing you would say to someone who's considering coming to onsite, who needs the help to get better? What do you say to them to invite them into the fold? I hate to keep overusing this, but it's just something I say to everybody. It's not what you need. It's, it's what you deserve. And this is, um, I guess the other thing is this can be a often a hard and heavy conversation. And there, there is that element of it. And I can tell you, I'm somebody who likes to have fun and find meaning in what I do. And what I get an opportunity to do in stepping into the process of reconciling pain, rewriting narrative, leaning into who you are and who you're becoming is the most maybe meaningful thing you can ever do for yourself and the people around you. And it's actually a heck of a lot of fun. It takes a minute because it's uncomfortable, it's awkward, but I don't want you to think that this whole thing is a drag and something you have to go do. It's something that we all get to do. And the people that come out of this are, I think, more evolved, more equipped, better leaders, better fathers, better friends, better husbands, better partners, on and on and on. Um, And that is just by making the simple investment in you, you deserve it. So that's probably what I would say. Thank you, Miles. And what's a way people can reach out and find Onsite online? It's onsiteworkshops.com. You can follow us at at onsiteworkshops. I think we're active on Instagram, Twitter, on all the Facebook and or at Miles Edcox. I'm constantly talking about what we do as well. And the things that we're doing on campus, and we've also got some digital offerings, one that's already out and another one that will be coming out in a month or two that we're really excited about. At Onsite Workshops or onsiteworkshops.com or at Miles Adcox. Miles, thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending this time with us. We greatly appreciate your time and we graciously appreciate the work you're doing to save and change lives. Be well and be here tomorrow. And everybody watching, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Take care, Miles, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Margaret and I love sharing stories of people who have triumphed over incredible adversity. For more content and inspiration, go to kevinhindstory.com or visit us on all social medias at Kevin Hines Story or on youtube.com slash Kevin